Hello there, I'm Michael Jackson again. One of the finest of the current crop of war-themed cartoons comes from the seasoned pen of Beatty. It shows two of our troops, guns at the ready, hunkered down behind a ruined wall, gazing ahead. And one says, Is the White House finally thinking about withdrawing troops? The other retorts, No, uh, they're discussing the possibility of implementing a phased schedule for the post-surge redeployment paradigm. Thanks, Petey. And that probably is the way that it is. But Iraq, when President Bush claims that his surge strategy is working and he asserts that Iraqis of all ethnic stripes are joining together to fight what they now perceive as their common enemy, al-Qaeda, the obvious response is, are you sure? By contrast, human strife is increasing. Last week, a senator who's been a staunch and influential supporter of the Iraq war wanted a change, of course, in that war. Now the Oval Office should listen to the former head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Indiana's Senator Richard Luger. When a loyalist such as Luger, who happens to hail from Indiana, one of the few states in which the president is still popular, publicly breaks ranks with the party, that's news and important. After the Luger speech, the president's almost immediate response was to defend the surge. This despite Shiites fighting Sunnis, Shiite radicals against Americans, Kurds against Arabs, criminal gangs against almost anyone, Shiites fighting Shiites, Sunni Iraqis in Al-Anbar province against Sunni Al-Qaeda supporters. That's part of the scenario. Vice President Cheney and Mr. Bush don't just listen to each other. Listen to what's happening. Speaking of the president, his commutation of the prison sentence of Louis Scooter Libby saves his former aide from the sentence of two and a half years behind bars, but by failing to issue a full pardon, he's evading responsibility for whatever role his administration played in letting the former CIA spy Valerie Plame affair build into the fiasco that it did. This is sure to be a dark moment in the administration's story. Mr. Bush's commutation was a further incident of a profile in non-courage. To the real credit of the United States, this country has been by far the largest AIDS donor over the past several years. We've provided almost half of all the funding commitments made by the various donor governments. The group of eight industrialized nations have pledged to commit $60 billion to combat AIDS and other diseases around the world in the coming years, $60 billion to fight devastating epidemics, including tuberculosis, malaria, as well as HIV-AIDS. When measured against the size of the national economy, the American donation ranks actually fifth in the world. Again, we are by far the single largest donors, and at the recent meeting of the G8 nations, they pointed out that at least 10 million people will be treated for AIDS by 2010. Wouldn't it be wonderful, because it is possible, if it were to be treating with universal access to medications all those who suffer the slow death from AIDS? One of the real privileges of having been a broadcaster for so many decades has been the contact I've had with some of the most amazing people in the world. High up in those ranks is the former Archbishop of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu, who has never been shy to share his opinions on almost anything and to speak out very clearly when there is, as he perceives it, injustice. His style can be impish or tough and resolute. 
he's always effective. He pointed out recently that the gap between rich and poor in his home country, South Africa, is getting ever wider, to the point of possibly sweeping away the gains brought about by democracy since apartheid was overthrown in 1994. Using a biblical analogy, he claims that South Africans had crossed the Red Sea in their struggle against apartheid, but that very few had reached the promised land. Tutu added, we're sitting on a powder keg over the matter of redistribution of wealth. The last I heard was that only 5% of the companies have a significant black influence on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Archbishop Tutu won the Nobel Peace Prize, of course, back in 84, but just last week at a press luncheon in London, he said, I'm really very surprised by the remarkable patience of people. He added that it was very hard to, quote, explain why they didn't say to hell with Tutu, Nelson Mandela, and the rest, and go on a rampage. Tutu was one of the most influential and inspirational leaders of the anti-apartheid movement, and he has not for the first time in the eight-year presidency of Thabo Mbeki waded into an acutely sensitive political debate. He's never fearful and usually accurate in his assessments or predictions. One of the most memorable telephone calls I ever received on the air came the morning after the general election results were announced in South Africa. Using the ballot box, not violence, apartheid was overthrown, and equality of opportunity was the watchword for all. The inevitable happened. Majority rule caused the ouster of the whites, and the government of the majority blacks was installed under Nelson Mandela. And just as I came on the air there was a phone call from the Archbishop of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu, and his opening words were, Michael, when are you coming home? I had spent my teen years in the Republic of South Africa, and he considered me a fellow citizen, despite my color. I'm white. It was a heartfelt offer, and one day I hope to be able to return to see the progress made peacefully. Because I live and work in Los Angeles, I suppose some comment would be expected about the current predicament faced by the mayor of the city. Yes, he's been having an affair, or as it's usually described on networks, a relationship with one of the better-known anchorwomen for the Telemundo television channel. Mayor Antonio Villaragosa has been cheating on his wife, cheating on his children, cheating on the people who put him in high office. The woman is a political reporter. Aside from the troubling revelations about the mayor and his affair, what does it say about his fitness to lead? Their relationship has apparently been going on for at least a year and a half, and it's believed that prior to that, Ms. Salinas had affairs with at least two other Los Angeles influential politicians, Fabian Nunez, the California Assembly Speaker, and the former Los Angeles City Council President Alex Padilla, now a state senator. I think we, the public, have the right to expect that the people who deliver the news aren't, so to speak, in bed with those they cover. These are different times. I don't expect that the mayor's career and ambitions are going to be influenced and that after some embarrassment, he'll be judged by his performance as mayor of Los Angeles. As for Miss Salinas, I'll wait and read the book before making any comment. As recently as 1960, the picture of America would show some 50% of households included children under the age of 18. Wow, has that changed radically. By the year 2000, the portion had fallen to less than one-third of families, and in a few short years, it's projected that no more than a quarter of all households will include children. And here's another change. It's one in perception, the perception of the purpose of marriage. 
That's tumbled from over 65% to only 41%. We are rapidly moving away from a child-oriented society to an adult-centered culture. Maybe we should all have been born then, rather than recently. Many, many papers have tried their hand at editorializing on whether or not in these fearful times when stories about planned terror events are reported over much of the world, whether the United States should emulate London with their camera network. The speed with which London surveillance cameras helped identify their most recent would-be bombers was an eye-opener. By the end of this year, it appears that Lower Manhattan will have installed a similar permanent system of cameras, it becomes both a forensic tool and officials hope a deterrent to many would-be terrorists. This could become more and more intrusive and open to abuse, raising some constitutional questions. We have a very different constitutional system, and before our cities are wired with a, a similar system of live-roving electronics eyes, I would expect to hear much debate as to what it means in terms of surrendering privacy. Millions of private cameras already guard building entrances, but American cities don't have extensive live networks tied to a central surveillance center, as does London. Do they stop attacks or simply help identify those who commit the crimes? And what about the thought that such surveillance does not cut down on major crimes, it simply moves the criminal to a different venue, one without cameras? The U.S. Constitution says that a president and vice president can be impeached for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors by a simple majority vote. That means formally charged by the House. Conviction by the Senate requires a two-thirds majority, and that means removal from office. Of most recent memory, of course, Bill Clinton was impeached in 1988, but just a year later he was acquitted. What good is being done by Bush and Cheney that might mitigate the low opinion that the majority have of these men and their actions? I wonder, will either be impeached? I'm Michael Jackson. Um.